If you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12 this morning. So we're finishing Luke chapter 12, and just a quick recap as we come to the end of this chapter. Last week we saw in verses 35 to 48, Jesus warning the disciples of the need to be ready for his coming when he will judge every person and to live in such a way that they would live for Christ and to not waste their lives. And we learned last week that life is about knowing Christ and sharing Christ, seeing people grow in grace and being built up from every tribe and tongue and nation. And, and that is the purpose for why we've been saved, to, to be part of this, this mission that the Lord has given to us. And then, of course, seeing people come to faith in Christ and seeing people that didn't have a people now have a, a faith family to belong to really makes life worth living. And in our passage this morning... Jesus once again exhorts us to be ready for his return by making sure of the question of our eternal destiny is settled before it's too late. So we're reading this morning Luke 12 from verse 49 to verse 59. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her, her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never go out until you have paid the very last penny. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the spirit of worship this morning. Thank you already for the truths that we've sung in these songs. Thank you for the truths we have read in your scriptures. Thank you for the truths that have been prayed in the prayers lifted high this morning. But as we come to your word, Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to, to see these truths afresh. Perhaps we've read these portions of scriptures and we're familiar with them. And perhaps we would switch off this morning and just go through the routines. And we pray that that would not be the case. We pray, Father, that you would give us these eyes to see clearly, that you would give us ears to, to hear clearly, and give us hearts to receive these truths properly, Father, this morning. We pray for your spirit to teach us. We pray, Lord, that he would help us. You have promised, Lord, that he would be our teacher, and we call upon him this morning to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Noland Bushnell, the man who founded Atari, um, the once leading um, computer gaming system, he had hired Steve Jobs in the early 1970s. And in 1976, Jobs left to set up the Apple computers and offered Noland a third share of his new company for only $50,000. And Nolan turned it down, something he admittedly regrets to this day. Atari is no longer quite the household name that it once was uh, 20 years ago. And of course, Apple Computers is one of the leading computer software companies in the world and is predicted to reach a market value of $1 trillion fairly soon. So we all know what it is to waste a privilege. We all know what it is to miss and waste an opportunity. And sometimes it's minimal damage, but sometimes it sends your life in a direction from which you can never recover. Wasted opportunity is not unfamiliar to us, and we could draw from all kinds of experiences and all kinds of lives as illustrations of wasted opportunities. But whenever I think about wasted opportunity, I think about the whole generation of the Jews that were living during the time of Jesus. They were the ones who had rejected Christ after being exposed to his teaching, after seeing him, after hearing him, after being close to him and watching his miracles and his divine power, experiencing all the evidence that they needed to prove his, his character and his divinity. They were one of the most privileged people in all of human history. But this is the only period of time in which God walked on the earth. It's the only period of time where, where Jesus was amongst his creation. And we know three years of his life, he spent ministering to these people, helping them to understand that he was the Messiah. He was there, God incarnate, visible. You know, his miracles and his teaching was experienced by the whole population of the, the land of Israel at that time. They were the most popular, the, the, they were the most privileged generation of, the, of our history as we know it today. And yet they rejected Jesus. They rejected him as the Messiah. But sadly, there are still people like this today. And people who, in spite of the testimony of Scripture, in spite of the evidence of the Bible, in spite of history itself, still rejecting Jesus Christ. One commentator, he said in Luke chapter 12, the end of Luke 12, where we are looking at this morning, ends with a a fiery blaze of judgment and an urgent warning to find safety in Christ before it is too late. And that's really what Jesus is doing in our passage this morning. He realizes that this privileged people are wasting their opportunities and it's going to be too late fairly soon. Just three months are left before Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross. And he is urging them one more time to be ready, ready for the judgment. 
and to be prepared for the, the crisis which was soon to come. So there are at least three parts to the message that we're going to look at this morning. Only three points. And my first point this morning is a powerful declaration. A powerful declaration. We look in verse 49 and verse 50. But in verse 49, Jesus says, I have come to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. So what does the fire represent? Well, some say it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, a symbol of God's word, a symbol of the gospel, a symbol of, of faith or a spiritual fervor. But I think R.C. Sproul is correct when he says, often when the Bible uses the image of fire, it uses it in one of two ways. Either the refiner's fire that purifies or the fire of judgment which destroys. And here in this passage, Jesus is talking about judgment. And this picture of fire is clearly a picture of the, the judgment which will destroy. And Jesus then went on to give a second image, and that is the image of, of baptism in verse 50. But the word baptism in the Greek is baptizo, and it's a verb. It means to cover completely. It means to whelm, to overwhelm, and it means to be immersed. That is the meaning of the word baptism. And our Lord's baptism in verse 50 is not referring to his water baptism. He's referring to his death. He's referring to the, the suffering, the complete suffering that he is going to experience at the hands of the, the Romans. And the sufferings of Christ were so large and were, were so many that it was necessary for him to be, to be covered with this, immersed with this suffering. And why? This is really the whole point of this passage this morning. The whole reason that Christ had to suffer, and had to be immersed in this type of suffering, was because of the sin of mankind, because of the greatness of the sin of mankind, because of the greatness of your sin and my sin. The Lord says, I have a baptism to undergo. I have an immersion into divine wrath and, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. The Lord wasn't looking forward to this. And the word distress there in, in verse 50 is a, is a verb which simply means to, to seize. And the Lord's saying, I'm seized. I, I'm being gripped with this fear of this suffering which, which I have to over, overcome. And it's, the word is used for being pressed. The Lord was being squeezed, this relentless squeezing until it was finally accomplished. And he uses the word there, tetaleste. We're familiar with that word in John 19, where the Lord is on the cross. And he says, it is finished. He uses the same Greek word, tetaleste. So here the Lord's saying, I really wish this was over. I really wish this part of my life would be over. This suffering which I still have to endure would be over. And of course, the Lord is anticipating the terrible, cruel cross which He is going to have to undertake in the next few months. And Jesus is making it very clear that His work of redemption 
on our behalf is going to cost him terrible suffering and terrible pain. He was not looking forward to it because he knew all well the terrible cost that our redemption required. Jesus is acknowledging, firstly, that he willingly takes upon himself the distress. He's not saying that he won't do it. It's just that he's not looking forward to this terrible pain. But he's willing to take upon this distress. He's willing to take upon this suffering. He's willing to take upon the, the pain. He's willing to take upon the sorrow. He's willing to take upon the shame that is necessary for the purchase of our salvation. For the purchase of our salvation. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, especially here in this passage, that he is ready, he is willing, and he is able to endure anything and everything necessary in order to purchase for them the forgiveness of sin and everlasting fellowship with God. And just in a few months, Jesus would die by crucifixion on the cross of Calvary. He would experience a, a fiery, fierce trial when he suffered the absolute wrath of God as he bore the penalty of the sins of mankind. But let us, let us park here a moment. Before we, we rush over this truth, let us, let us take this in a moment. You know, this last week, um, we have been training some men who will be leading some small discipleship groups. We've been discussing Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel? And I would encourage you to sign up for those discipleship groups. It's going to be a wonderful study, a wonderful time of discipleship. But what we've learned from this book is that not everybody knows or understands the full implications of the gospel. And the title of the book is, What is the Gospel? And Greg Gilbert starts one chapter with the story of a parking ticket, um, which he had to pay. And he said that even though he, he paid the fine and he admitted his guilt formally by signing the, the ticket sheet, he left the police station knowing that he was not going to lose any sleep over his walk on the wrong side of the law. Those were his words. But he goes on to explain that he didn't feel very bad, he didn't feel very convicted about breaking a parking regulation because it did not strike him as being all that important, all that heinous. And he then makes the connection, which I'm trying to make with this passage. He says that most people tend to think of sin, especially their own, as not much more than a parking infraction. Yes, of course, he says, we think technically sin is a violation of the law handed down by God on high and all that, but surely he must know there are bigger criminals out there than me. Besides, nobody was hurt, and I'm willing to pay the fine. And sadly, this is how most people think of their own sin. I think he is absolutely right. We've just been going through the the Ten Commandments, haven't we? And we've seen how the Bible defines what sin is. But how many people have heard the truth and have heard how God defines sin and still rejected it and said, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. According to the Bible, sin is a lot more than just a violation of some 
impersonal, heavenly traffic regulation. Jesus paid a terrible price on that cross. And he knows what to expect. He knows the price that is involved. And until we see our sin the way God does, until we see our sin as the the traitorous rebellion of a beloved God against His righteousness and against His goodness, we will never understand why the death of God's Son was necessary or why it was required in order to address this sin problem. And Gilbert goes on to say in his book, and I quote, Many Christians talk about sin as if it were merely a relational tiff between God and man. And what is needed is for us simply to apologize and accept God's forgiveness. And that image of sin as lovers quarrel, though distorts the relationship in which we stand before God. It communicates that there is no broken law, no violated justice, no righteous wrath, no holy judgment, and therefore ultimately no need for a substitute to bear that judgment either. Think about that for a moment. The last time that you sinned, the last time that you lusted after a woman or a man, and you justified it in your mind by saying, it's not such a bad thing, I'm not hurting anybody. You're treating God like this spiritual traffic cop, this, this policeman. You think that you haven't violated a, a heinous law that you need to answer for. And of course, that's the problem. Just as Greg Gilbert explains here, Jesus was a substitute for our sins, for that sin that you committed, for that sin that you think was not necessary, for that sin that you think is so small, that sin that you never asked your husband or your wife for forgiveness for, that you have tried to sweep under the carpet. That is what Jesus had to die for. And that is this terrible image that Jesus has in his mind right here. This baptism that Jesus endured was the baptism of the cross. It was going to be a painful experience. And he became your substitute on that cross. And he paid for for your sins on that cross. The sins that you should have paid for, Jesus paid. Jesus endured the cross on our behalf. Let's not think lightly of that this morning. And this is the distress that he's talking about that he so willingly embraced. And he's saying to the disciples, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to embrace that distress until it is all accomplished, until I have accomplished all of the, your salvation. And we see really Jesus is expressing his devotion to his disciples. He's telling us about the gospel And he's telling us about what he's done to accomplish our salvation. There's not really a better picture of salvation. Our salvation is being purchased by Christ. Our salvation is not something that we have done or we have earned. It is something that Jesus has earned. 
And when we thank God for the gospel, we thank God for sending Jesus to the cross. And our faith is in the work that He has accomplished, not in the works that we perform on this earth. And if our faith is in our works, we are not saved. If our faith is in in our expertise, in in our religion, in our um, Christianity, it is not enough. Our faith needs to be in the work that Jesus has accomplished on the cross. My second point this morning is really a penetrating question, a powerful declaration in verse 49 and verse 50, but now a penetrating question in verse 51 to verse 53. Jesus said that he's focused on our salvation. Then he turns to the disciples and he says, look at verse 51. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Well, if you turn back to Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Luke opened the gospel announcing peace on earth. It's announced there. But now, it seems like the Lord is contradicting this promise. Jesus does give peace to those who trust in Him. The Scriptures tell us that in in Romans chapter 5. But often, their confession of faith becomes a declaration of war among their family members and among their friends who do not know Christ. And Jesus is a cause of division. And that's what he's saying here in this passage. Jesus knows that when his disciples go out and declare the gospel, declare the dogmatic gospel, that he is the only way, that he is the only truth, that he is the only life, that not everybody is going to meet them with, with honor and praise. They're not going to be received easily by the population. There will be hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people who will tell them that they are crazy, who will tell them that they are out of their minds, who will throw stones at them. Jesus is saying to the disciples, do not be surprised when that happens. There will be those who embrace me as Lord and Savior, and there will be those who will reject me as Lord and Savior. And there will be no in-between. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. Jesus says, I am the dividing line. I've come to draw a line in the sand. And you're either on this side or you're either on the other side. And we understand this. There are people in this room who were perhaps born and raised in a home where where Jesus was not loved and Jesus was not worshipped. Or maybe you were born in a nominal Christian home where it was the Christian thing, it was the ritual thing to go to church every once in a while, especially Christmas and especially Easter. And there was no true faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've grown up in a home like that. And maybe somewhere along the line, in high school or in college, or even as you came to Abu Dhabi, you found out what it means to be born again. You found the gospel. And as a result, your family members, your friends, your peers have thought that you have gone crazy. They thought that you have lost your mind. Or maybe as an adult you came to faith in Christ and now your children are looking at you and thinking that you are some religious fanatic. I remember a friend once told me that after he got saved... He told his wife that 
He wanted to obey the Lord through the waters of baptism. And his wife's response was, you know, what's wrong with you? Are you going through a midlife crisis? I mean, what a response. There are people in this room that understand the divisions that can happen even in families when someone who comes to faith in Christ encounters parents or relatives or friends or even children that are offended by their testimony of faith in Christ. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, when I come into this world and I preach the gospel myself, some people have rejected me. And they will reject you. They will reject you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you preach the gospel, when you preach about me and some will reject you. I didn't come to bring peace. There will be division. Our Savior clearly taught that if we proclaim the gospel and we hold true to the gospel, we must be prepared for division, even among our family members. J.C. Ryle, he points out here in this passage, it is not the gospel which is to blame for such divisions, but the corrupt heart of men. You may be tempted to think, well, if that's the case, then I'm not going to be sharing the gospel with my loved ones. Well, the problem is, it's not the gospel's problem. It's not the gospel's fault. It's the sinful hearts of man who will reject Christ. They will always reject the truth. When they are exposed by the light, they will run into the darkness. Unless they're willing to submit to the Lord of light, there will always be divisions. But we must stand with our Lord even when it results in such painful divisions. We need to stand with our Lord and not be ashamed of Him or His gospel. There's a true story of a missionary from Texas who was visiting a small church in Malaysia. And at one of the church's worship services, a teenage girl came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ and to be baptized. And during the service, the missionary noticed some worn-out luggage that was leaning against the wall of the church building. And he asked the pastor about this luggage. Whose luggage is that? And the pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized. And this is what he said. Her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never come home again. So she brought her luggage. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't be surprised when people take offense at these declarations. Don't be surprised when you are on the other side of the dividing line. But do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed. They've said the same thing to me. They will say the same thing to you. And Jesus asks this question to the disciples because he wants them to be ready. He wants them to be prepared for this rejection for the sake of the gospel because Jesus says, I'm worth it. I'm worth the world looking at you and saying that you are crazy. I'm worth the rejection. 
So believe me. Believe the gospel. Believe the truth that I am proclaiming to you. And then he gives them a piercing admonition. In verse 54 to verse 59, he turns to the multitudes and he issues this very stern warning to the people that were listening, to the, to the unbelievers, to the multitudes that were with them. Look at Luke 12, verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and that happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, firstly, because of their lack of spiritual discernment. You know, this great conversation has been going on about the dividing line and the world and and history and Jesus and the gospel and the work that he would accomplish for them. And then he looks at the multitude and he says, you know what? You can tell me about the weather and you can tell me what, what it's going to be like today. You can, but you can't tell me anything about God. You can't tell me anything about God. The God who made the, the earth and the sky. The God who made those clouds. You cannot tell me about him. You can look at a little cloud coming across the Mediterranean. And you know when that cloud gets up into the hill country, it's going to turn into rain. You know about these things, but you can't tell me anything about God. You can't tell me about the things of God. Jesus uses two illustrations here. I mean, you can sense his, his frustration here. You can sense his exasperation here. He spent two and a half years of his life with these people, and they still don't know about the gospel. And he gives another illustration, really to impress on the crowds the importance of being spiritually discerning. First he talks about the weather, and now he talks about a lawsuit in verse 57. Read there, he says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. Look at verse 59. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is a parable. Jesus often used parables to teach difficult truths. And he's using this parable to warn the crowds about the urgency that needs to be involved when it comes to making sure that they are reconciled with the almighty judge before it's too late. And the word accuser in verse 58 is the Greek word antidikos, which is translated in the King James as adversary. It can be translated also as opponent. So here we have the adversary, the opponent is the law. It's not Satan. It is the law that is accusing them. We see in John chapter 5, in verse 45, it is explained to us, 
Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. This is Jesus speaking. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Moses, who wrote the law. This is what Jesus is talking about. It is the law that is going to accuse you. You have set your hope on the law. The Jews trusted the law. The Jews boasted about the law. They were the chosen people who were given the law. They trusted in the law. They rested in the law. And they expected eternal life if they kept the law. And now, Jesus is saying, the law is going to accuse you. You have broken the law. You have transgressed the law. If you break one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. And the law has accused you. And you stand guilty before God. The nation of Israel was marching to judgment. And the judge was Almighty God. Yet they would not seek for terms of peace. They didn't want His terms of peace. They wanted their own terms of peace. And much like the illustration that Greg Gilbert used in his book, the Jews did not feel very bad or convicted about breaking God's law. For them, it, it wasn't much more than breaking a parking regulation. For these Jews who would crucify Jesus in, in less than three months' time, they saw their sin as not much more than a parking infraction. Nothing more. Really, the general meaning of the parable was, was obvious to the hearers. They understood it. Jesus says, if you've got any sense, you will settle your issues of guilt before you arrive at the judge. That's what this parable is talking about. Discern the times. Discern these gospel opportunities that you have. And you better discern the threat. The threat of the judgment that awaits. If you don't, settle your guilt. He says, don't. Arrive at the great white throne judgment and, and say, I want to defend myself here. You won't be able to even talk. You won't be able even to speak. The record will speak for itself. And once your guilt is revealed, you'll be sent to an eternal punishment to get the wrath of the court for your crimes. You see, either Jesus pays for your sins or you pay for your sins. You pay for your sins in a place called hell. And you get the full wrath of God for those sins that you have sinned against a holy God. Or you can receive the substitute that Jesus offers you that he was willing to undergo on the cross of Calvary. Now Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto you once to die, and after this, the judgment. We don't get a second chance, folks. We are not reincarnated into, into another form and get another chance to live a good life. We have one life to live. We mustn't waste these opportunities that the Lord is giving to us to receive His forgiveness, to embrace the gospel. 
know, we can stand up and we can look back condescendingly on these Jews. We can point fingers at them. But this is a timely message, an appropriate message for every single one of us today. And the lesson is really simple. Be reconciled to God while there is still time. Be reconciled to God while it is still time. This is applicable for all of us. You know, we, we know a lot of stuff. You know, we come to church most Fridays. We go to home groups. We have plenty of Bibles on our shelves. We are privileged people. We are not much different from the Jews. But do you have spiritual discernment this morning? Do you have spiritual discernment? Are you able to see your sin as God sees it? Are you able to see Christ, the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins? You know, it's an amazing thing. These people have God in the flesh amongst them, in their midst, and they don't get it. They can't see it. God in the flesh, folks, has given us His Word. And we can read it, and we can hold it, and we can memorize it, and we can meditate, and we can still miss it. We can still miss it completely. And why? Why is that? Because if we don't see our sin as God sees it, we will never see our need for a Savior. If we don't recognize our sin as defined in the law, we will never see God's provision in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And it will make no sense to us. And perhaps this morning, you, you're yawning. Perhaps this morning, you're just wondering what lunch will be like in the next couple of hours. And you have no appetite for this spiritual food. And we are no different. We have all these privileges, but we still don't understand the seriousness, the heediness of our sins. We will be able to make no sense of this. If we don't see our sin as God sees it, we will never see our need for Jesus Christ. See, this is all about the gospel. And that's what Jesus is just trying to teach these people for three years now. This is all about His grace. He's the dividing line. And Jesus is saying to His disciples, and He's saying to you and me, if you don't understand who I am and what you need, nothing else makes sense in this world. So the question really this morning is, have you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in the one who bore the penalty for your sin? Now God punished Jesus. God punished the just for the unjust. That we might be brought to God. That we might be reconciled to God. And grace is available, folks. Forgiveness is available. Freedom from sin is available. Freedom from the punishment and the hope of eternal life 
and escape from judgment is available if we will put our faith in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. God is willing to reconcile. He's a reconciling God. We can't settle with God out of court. If you don't, you'll get to court and, and you'll have to pay in full to the very last cent. Settle your account this morning. Put your trust in Christ. Now God wants you to, to settle out of court. And that's really what he's saying this morning. And that's what he's saying to his disciples. That's what he's saying to the multitude that is following him. I want you to make peace with God through me, through faith in the cross, through faith in the work of the cross. And Jesus says, how could you waste such an opportunity? How could you waste such an opportunity? Before I close this morning, let me apply this to those who who are believers, who do have faith in Jesus Christ this morning. Talking about missed opportunities. You know, Christians, are you being discerning? Are you being wise? Are you using the opportunities God has given to you? We call them means of grace. And are you using the opportunities God has giving to you to shepherd your family well? Are you using opportunities God has given you to, to train and parent your, your children while they are still young in the Scriptures, while their lives are moldable? Are you using opportunities to, to shepherd your wife, to serve your, to serve your husband? Are you using opportunities God has given to you to, to share the gospel with your co-workers and your friends that you, you reach and meet every single day? Or are you wasting those opportunities? Are you using opportunities to, to minister in the church and through the church? Soon we'll start up again our grace groups, sorry, our, our home groups. Are you using opportunities to go to the home groups? To grow in your faith. And we'll start these discipleship groups soon. Take those opportunities to learn more about Christ. To be equipped so that you can serve Christ better. Use these opportunities. Don't waste these opportunities that God has given to you. But for those of you who are still confused and unable to make sense of this all, Jesus is saying to you, settle this issue of your salvation before it is too late. Before it is too late. If you don't discern the time and you don't discern the threat, you are in trouble. Because nobody knows the hour or the day when they will die. Isaiah 55 tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on Him while He is near. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of your salvation. Don't miss it. Don't miss the opportunities God has given you to find forgiveness of sins and peace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank You, Lord, for sending Jesus to this earth. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would do the work of redemption that needs to be done in the hearts of those people amongst us 
who are still trying to justify their sin, who are still making excuses for their sin. Lord, you've spoken clearly to us as a church. You, Lord, have shown us, Lord, what, what it was that separated us from you. It was sin. And we are corrupt in our hearts. We are corrupt in our natures. We are fallen creatures who have sinned against the creator of this universe. And still we make excuses. So Lord, this morning we pray, Father, take these excuses away. That we would stand before you naked. That we would stand before you ready. That we would have an advocate who has borne our sorrows and borne our sins and taken our grief. Father, I pray this morning, please help us understand the gospel. Help us to understand the free gift of grace that has been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to respond properly this morning. Help us to understand the gospel implications as we live lives that reflect Jesus Christ to the world around us. May we live under your Lordship. May we live always in fellowship with you, Lord Jesus. That you would be pleased by all we say and do. Save the lost today, Father. Comfort those that need to be comforted. For the sake of your great name, we ask and pray. Amen.